Today, I want you to look with me to the fifth chapter of the book of Acts. It is a rather unique passage of scripture, but it lays the foundation for our time together today. This passage is a really sobering incident in the early church where a man by the name of Ananias and his wife Sapphira lied to God about an offering they were supposedly going to give. There was an incredible revival that was going on in the early church at this time, and it was so powerful that believers were giving sacrificially to see the move of God furthered and expanded, literally. They were selling land and homes and livestock, sacrificing to invest in what God was doing so other people could experience it. And they were doing it cheerfully. They were doing it joyfully. They were doing it expectantly, but it was sacrificially. I don't know what motivated Ananias and Sapphira's lie. Maybe it was pride. Maybe it was their desire to manage their image or build their reputation or some other private agenda that the scripture doesn't say. But Ananias and Sapphira sell this piece of land. They brought a portion of the money and they told the apostles in the church that they had brought the full amount from the sale of the land and they secretly kept a large portion of it for themselves. Here's the thing. Nobody asked them to sell their land. Nobody asked them. They didn't have to give anything at all. They didn't have to sell their land. They could have sold the land, kept part of it, and given part of it, and all of that would have been fine and good. But their lie perverted an incredibly sacred and holy moment during this move of God in the early church. And on the heels of their lie, both of them pass away suddenly, and the early church sees their deaths as the judgment of God. Now there's a lot of mystery that surrounds this passage and it warrants some sermon time on its own and I'm prayerfully considering preaching through the book of Acts during this year at some point and if we get to that, we do that, then we'll get to Acts 5 in greater detail then. But today the reason I am pointing you to this passage is because the conversation between Peter and Ananias clearly reveals what the New Testament church believed about who the Holy Spirit is. Their belief is clear and undeniable in this conversation. After Ananias and Sapphira's lie is exposed, listen to how the Apostle Peter addresses Ananias. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit. And you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away, insinuating as you wished. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. Now, I want you to connect those two phrases. In verse 3, the Apostle Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, you weren't lying to us, but to God. So, to the early church, to the Apostle Peter, the Holy Spirit and God were one and the same. A lie to the Holy Spirit was a lie to God. Now, this is incredible insight into how the earliest followers of Jesus viewed the Holy Spirit. And for the next few minutes, I want to talk to you about the divine nature of the Holy Spirit. And some of you are like, uh, duh, I mean, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Who doesn't realize that the Holy Spirit is as much God as is the Father and the Son? Well, shockingly, a lot of people don't. It's not hard for them to think of the Father as God. It's not hard for them to think of the Son as God. But many people view the Holy Spirit as some junior deity, some lower-ranking impersonal force that is not equally God with the Father and the Son. Or for a lot of people, a lot of churches, that say they believe that the Holy Spirit is equally God, they don't act like it. 
they don't reverence the Spirit or they don't provide a seat of honor for the Holy Spirit in their churches or in their lives. And they conveniently tend to skip over or ignore the passages in Scripture that talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, that's never been an issue for me. I grew up in a stream of Christianity that believed in the triune God, the Trinity, and we honored the person of the Spirit in the same way we honored the Father and the Son. I just assumed that anybody that believed in the Trinity would honor the deity of the Holy Spirit. But the longer I've served in vocational ministry, the more I realize that's just not the case. Some years ago, I got an email on a Sunday evening, and I try my best not to open emails on Sunday evening, but for whatever reason, I did that night. The first email that popped up had these words in all caps, heresy. And if you, if you, uh, you know, if anybody types something to you in all caps, they're yelling at you in print. So he was yelling heresy at me. The writer of the email represented a small group of people that had just recently started attending North Place and they fell in love with it until that Sunday morning in worship we sang a song with these lyrics, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And due to some really bad theology that had been drilled into these people's heads, they now considered us heretics and were leaving the church because we honored, worshiped, and actually had a conversation with the Holy Spirit. They thought that we were only supposed to mention the name of Jesus in our songs and in our prayers and anything else to them was heresy. I didn't get angry with those people. Honestly, I felt sorry for them. My heart hurt for the lifeless, legalistic, dull Christian experience they must be living. Because any professing Christian that doesn't provide a place and honor for the Holy Spirit will never know what it means to live the full Christian experience shown to us in the Scripture. And one of the reasons that people fall into this theological trap is because the Holy Spirit by choice and by nature operates in the background. His goal is never to bring attention to himself. His purpose and desire is always to glorify Jesus, to honor Jesus, to reveal Jesus. I mean, what did Jesus say in John 16 verse 13? When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. Listen to this, verse 14. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. The Spirit always comes into a life, into an atmosphere to make much of Jesus. That's his desire, to glorify the Son. But he doesn't come where he's not invited. He doesn't come where he's not hosted or welcomed. And how is he going to be invited in a room or into your life if you don't ever talk to him, if you don't ever pray, if you don't ever ask him? And because he's God, the only proper thing to do is reverence him and worship him. Look, the more of the Holy Spirit that is in the room, the more of the presence of God is in the room. He he is the very presence of God. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of Jesus. You could say the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and those are four different ways to talk about the same being. And you see this in Romans 8. In Romans 8, Paul is having this conversation about the ongoing battle in a Christian's life between their carnal nature, their flesh, their sinful nature, and their new nature that has become a part of them once they gave their life to Jesus Christ. And there's this ongoing battle between the sinful nature and the nature of Christ that lives in us. That's what Romans 8 is about. And in one verse, I want you to notice how he refers, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit three different ways in one verse. He says this in Romans 8 verse 9. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature, you are controlled by the Spirit. Number one, if you have the Spirit of God living in you, reference number two, 
And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ, reference number three, living in them, do not belong to Him at all. Three different ways to refer to the Holy Spirit in one verse. The Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. In Matthew 18, Jesus makes this statement, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. If Jesus has ascended into heaven and, according to Scripture, is seated at the right hand of the Father, then the only way that Jesus can be present where two or three of us gather in his name is through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only active agent of God on this earth. He is the one that comes into our life, that comes into a worship service like this and makes Jesus real. He is the one that comes into prayer gatherings and and, and into these experiences. So when we gather and say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, What we're simply asking is that the Holy Spirit would come manifest the presence of Jesus in this room. As you read your Bible, you'll see Jesus was utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. Yes, Jesus is 100% God, but Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, when Jesus came in the flesh, he chose to live within the constraints of the flesh. He took on the limitations of our humanity. He wanted to know what it was like to live our life. So this is what Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 7. He gave up his divine privileges. Never stopped being God, but he laid aside his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave or a servant and was born as a human being. So while he never stopped being God, he chose to lay aside his divine privileges and become a human. Which means all the things that he did while he was here on earth were not performed from his divine nature, but was performed from his anointed humanity, which is exactly what the book of Acts tells us. Acts 10 verse 38, and you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Now notice the phrase Jesus of Nazareth. When you read your Bible, there are some writers that emphasize his divinity, the Son of God, they'll talk about. Some other writers want to emphasize his humanity and they will call him the Son of Man because he's both the Son of God and the Son of Man. The emphasis on the Son of Man is the emphasis on his humanity. And when the writer here, Luke, says that this is Jesus of Nazareth, he's trying to tell you this is the the man, the human, the, the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. The Son of Man was anointed with the Spirit's power and it was actively involved in his life so much that it, it empowered him to do amazing things. It says, then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. He was conceived by the Spirit, the Bible says. He was taught by the Spirit. He was empowered by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. And he only heard what spoke, what he heard from the Spirit. And I think it's important. That he didn't do one single miracle until that day he was baptized in water in John 1. And right after he was baptized in water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. That was his baptism in or with the Spirit in John 1. And then the first miracle he performed happened in John 2. These realities have profound implications for us. Why? Because the same Spirit wants to work in us and anoint us and use us in our human limitations. And there is no telling what could happen in our world if Christ followers actually believed this and sought this and walked in the Spirit's power and anointing in their lives. If Jesus, the Son of God, depended all the time on this ongoing partnership with the Holy Spirit to complete His mission, how much more do we need the Spirit 
to live our lives and fulfill our mission. Now, we're just taking a quick glimpse into what Jesus taught and said about the Spirit. But before we move on, I, I want you to see one more thing that he said about the Spirit. Listen to what he says in John 14. There's so much more, but we're just this quick glimpse. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate. We're going to key in on that word another in just a minute. Some versions say another helper, another comforter, another advocate. The Greek word here can be translated multiple ways. Who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives in you now and later will be in you. He lives with you now and will later be in you. That, there's so much to unpack here and we don't have time. But in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at that phrase. What does he mean? The Holy Spirit is with you now and will later be in you. Jesus was pointing to something in the future and we're going to look into that in a moment but I want you to see verse 16 the key today is the word another in verse 16 and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate he is the Holy Spirit there are two words that Jesus could have chosen to speak in this moment two two different words to communicate the concept of another the Greek words heteros and alos both mean another the Greek word heteros means another of a different sort the Greek word alos means another of the same kind, the same in every way. Before I tell you which word Jesus used here, let me give you an example. Let's say I have a platter of fruit and I'm walking around the room and I hand you a piece of an apple from the platter. And when you're finished with that, I ask you, would you like another piece of fruit? And you say, sure, yes. And I hand you that time a slice of an orange. I have given you another but it was another of a different sort. An orange is still fruit, but it's a different sort of fruit than an apple. That is heteros, another of a different sort. But if you ask for another piece of fruit and I handed you another piece of apple, that's alos, another of the exact same kind. When Jesus says in John 14, hey, I've got to go away. I'm going to send to the Father, but when I send, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to come, and he's going to be another helper, another comforter, another advocate. He uses the word alos. And when he does, he's communicating that the Holy Spirit is the exact same as him. Another in the exact same kind. Another in the exact same, everything exactly the same. Which means what Jesus is saying here, the Holy Spirit is not junior God. He is as much God as I am he is the same, alos, in every way. Now, going back to the emailed accusation of heresy, because we set a place of honor for the Holy Spirit here, let me, let me show you. I just We didn't make this up. I, I, want you, I want you to know where we get our practice from. I want you to see how the earliest followers of Jesus interacted with the Holy Spirit. I want you to see how church leaders and members of the early church looked to, interacted, depended on, and spoke to the Holy Spirit. He was a vital part of their lives and involved in everything they did. Now, I'm going to skip over the big passages, the climactic passages, where the Holy Spirit is poured out, like Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. I'm going to skip Acts 8, where the Holy Spirit came upon the Samaritans, or Acts 10, where the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius, or Acts 19, where the Holy Spirit fell in Ephesus. I don't want to look at the big ones. I just want you to see the little things, the everyday, minute-by-minute occurrences in these early believers' lives. We've already referenced Acts 5. 
where Ananias and Sapphira lied and Peter equated lying to the Holy Spirit as lying to God. But in that same chapter, verse 9, Peter says to them, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the Spirit of the Lord like this? Or verse 32, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. In Acts 7, Stephen is about to become the first Christian martyr. Religious leaders are about to stone him for his faith in Christ. And he asked those religious leaders, must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. In Acts 11, Peter uses the phrase, the Holy Spirit told me to go with them. In Acts eleven twenty-eight, one of them stood up through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Acts 13, verse 4, two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Acts 15, 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Acts 16, verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Acts 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Acts 19, verse 21. Afterward, Paul felt compelled by the Spirit to go over to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. Paul says in Acts 20, I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. In the same chapter, Paul says to church leaders, guard yourselves in God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. This is just a small glimpse into the life of the early church and their moment-by-moment intimacy, connection, conversation, reliance, and interaction with the Holy Spirit in their everyday lives. What was a normal pattern for these early followers of Jesus is not the normal pattern in America's church today. Today, it's so rare for people to have that kind of a relationship with God that when somebody does, they're seen as special or, or unique when it's supposed to be normal. But when you do a deep dive and study the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church, in Scripture, and you study what Jesus teaches about the Spirit, you start to realize that we've drawn back from enjoying, seeking out, depending on the leadership, the camaraderie, the interaction, and the powerful influence of the Spirit of God in our lives. Now, we briefly, just briefly, looked at the teachings of Jesus, did a quick scan of the book of Acts. But just think about, what does church history say? Okay, What does church history say about the church's relationship with the Holy Spirit, the believer's relationship with the Holy Spirit. Think about the creeds, okay? For years, we've been leaning upon the statement of beliefs that came out of church councils that are known as creeds. And whatever the council was, it became known as that city's creed or council. Uh, there would be heresies. Not long after Jesus you know, ascended into heaven, there were all these kind of crazy ideas about the gospel, about Jesus that started and church fathers would call these councils together to address the false beliefs. And at the end of that council, they would create this statement of beliefs that became known as a creed. And one of those famous ancient creeds that we still refer to today, we sing about, we pray in the modern church is the Apostles' Creed. It goes like this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. 
I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, before I read on, let me just say this. Notice Catholic there is little c. This is not a reference to the Catholic with the proper noun of the denomination of a Catholic church. When it's a little c, it's just an adjective. And the, the word Catholic, when it's not a pronoun, like for uh, or, or describing the denomination, it just means universal. The universal church, the global church. I'm not talking about one segment. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the global or universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I want you to see the prominence of the Holy Spirit in the Apostles' Creed. But the very first creed ever written was in A.D. 325. The council met in the city of Nicaea, and the statement of beliefs that came out of that was known as the Nicene Creed. At the end of that council, they said a lot of things. It's a long creed. I'm not going to read it all. I just want you to read the one section where they affirm the church's belief about the Holy Spirit. It says this, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. This was the statement of doctrine and belief in the church 325 years after Jesus, that recent. The Holy Spirit was considered Lord and God, and he was worshipped with the Father and the Son, not ignored, not treated like a second-class deity, but worshipped. But don't just look at the creeds. Think of all the ancient, well-known hymns that we still sing today. In 1225, St. Francis of Assisi penned the words to his famous hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King, is still sung today, written in 1225. And the fourth verse of that famous hymn says this, Let all things their creator bless, and all worship him in humbleness. Oh, praise him, hallelujah, praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Spirit, three in one. In 1529, Martin Luther, the great founder of the Reformation, wrote a famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In 1529, in the fourth verse of A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Luther says this, The Spirit and the gifts are ours. Through him who with us sideth, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. The spirit and the gifts are ours. In 1740, the great Methodist preacher and hymn writer Charles Wesley wrote in his famous hymn, Come, Holy Ghost, our hearts inspire. Let us thine influence prove, source of the old prophetic fire, fountain of life and love. Come, Holy Ghost, for moved by thee, the prophets wrote and spoke, unlock the truth, thyself the key. Unseal the sacred book, expand thy wings, celestial dove, brood o'er our nature's night. On our disordered spirits move and let there now be light. Or what about the song we sing a lot now? It's called the doxology. We call it the doxology, but before it was ever known as the doxology, it was the 14th verse of the morning hymn written in 1695 by Thomas Ken. And here's what the doxology says. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, 
And who? Holy Ghost. Look, if we're heretics for addressing the Holy Spirit in our worship, our songs, and our prayers, so are the respected hymn writers, and so are the early church fathers that wrote the creeds, and so are the first century believers and the apostles. Obviously, they weren't heretics, and neither are we. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says this, For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or liberty. Now, we know by nature that God is omnipresent. His Spirit is everywhere, all at the same time. The, the, the Proverbs, the Psalm says this, I can never escape from your Spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go to the grave, you are there. I mean, God is everywhere all the time. Okay, we know that. But yet the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Then why is freedom not everywhere all the time? There isn't freedom in brothels or bars or meth houses. I've been in neighborhoods and schools and homes and even churches where there was no spiritual freedom. So how do you reconcile that God is everywhere all the time and where the Spirit of the Lord there is freedom, but freedom isn't found everywhere? The answer is in that title, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord. The word Paul uses for Lord here is kyrios, and it means supreme authority. God is everywhere. But the Holy Spirit is not treated as Lord everywhere. He's not treated with reverence and honor. He's not honored where he goes. He's not treated like he's God. And where the Holy Spirit is not permitted to be an authority, where he is not welcomed as supreme, there will be no freedom. Where the Holy Spirit is honored and allowed to be Lord, there will be freedom and liberty. Listen, there's something stirring in our church right now that's very unique. I've been your pastor almost 20 years and there is a spiritual hunger brewing in the heart of this church unlike I've seen in nearly 20 years for our prayer meeting to grow by hundreds every week during this fast to where there was a thousand of you gathered a thousand adults gathered in this room just this room Wednesday night praying we were packed I was more thrilled to see that than the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that come to our Easter services because I know our future is not well attended Easter services the future of this church is in the effectiveness of our prayer meetings these things shall come by fasting and prayer, the Bible says. And you're doing it in a greater way, more fervently, with a deeper hunger than I've ever seen. And I believe God's pleased. I really do. And we've been pouring our heart out on Him for the last 21 days. We've just been giving Him everything in this fast. And I really believe tonight's going to be special because He's going to pour His heart out on us. And we're just going to feel His love tonight in a, in a unique and profound way. But I have to tell you, I've, when I first became the pastor here, they told you I'm 50. I was 31 and early on, I was in the altar in our old building, a small building, not at this location, envisioning what it might be like when we moved to a new, larger sanctuary. And I can't tell you I had a vision. I just had this movie in my head, this impression of a, a move of God that would come to this church. And for whatever reason, that move of God was marked by two things. We had to keep the baptistry warm because we were baptizing people every day. Like there were people coming to Christ and we were baptizing people every day. But the other marker was that were these prayer gatherings and worship times where not well, they weren't regular services. They were outside of regular services where there were so many people hungry for God. They would fill the auditorium and they, would, they, were, they, would, they were down the hallways and out into the lobby. And the, the entire building was just full of people. People were coming onto the parking lot, experienced the presence and the power of God. No, in, no, no point in the last 20 years have I ever felt like we were coming up on a worship night where that was a possibility. 
tonight, that's a possibility. The way you've been showing up at prayer. And I know when I tell you that, I'm hesitant to tell you that because you're like, well, I'm not coming because the parking lot's going to be full and it's going to be crowded. If you feel what I feel, you won't care. It won't matter. If all I do is get through the glass door in the sanctuary and the train of his robe fills the temple, I'm just going to stop right there. That's, that's as far as I need to go. I just, in my heart, we're this close. <laughs> we're this close. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I just, I will tell you this. What God's doing is beautiful. It's humbling. It's sacred. And our elders and leaders are praying, asking God to give us wisdom to steward it well. We're not going to let the sensationalist hijack it with emotionalism. And we're not going to let the traditionalist kill it by forcing it into some legalistic denominational box. We're just going to keep being humble, giving the Holy Spirit a seat of honor so He can come and make us more like Jesus. You can't give the Spirit of God a seat of honor and Him not move supernaturally. Don't just think about it in church. Think about it in your personal life. What would happen in your home, at work, in your private life, if you said more than ever, I'm going to give the Spirit of God a seat of honor in my, my thought life and my and everything that I do. I'm giving the Spirit of God a seat of honor. If you'll make room for Him, you'll let Him be the Spirit of the Lord in your life. Freedom and liberty will come. I want you to stand with me across this room today. and Before we walk out of here, this is the last thing I want us to do. I want us to sing a song in response. I don't think this was the song we sang the day I got the email, but it's close enough. It says, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. And I believe that. I believe the church fathers have been singing that. The psalmist wrote that. Jesus lived that. I think it's okay for us to pray that. And so I want you to make this your prayer. In my life, in my church, Holy Spirit, we will host you. You have a seat of honor here. We will welcome you. Come on, will you sing this? I think you'll know it. Nothing worth more that will ever come close. Nothing can compare for our living hope. Your presence, and I've tasted it. to be over.
prayer team if they would to come and make themselves available today I believe the Holy Spirit wants to make Jesus real in this room as healer as savior as way maker as provider we're going to pray and just believe he will manifest the presence of Jesus in our prayer requests today our team will be here to pray with you before you go father would you bless them and keep them would you make your face shine down upon them be gracious to them Turn your countenance, their direction. And Lord, would you bring peace to us, to this house. Let us become the host of the Holy Spirit's presence. And may we end today the way we begin tonight, welcoming you into this environment. In Jesus' name, amen.